Scott Bakula, and you're listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett stepped into the Quantum Leap Accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself trapped in the past, facing mirror images that were not his own, and driven by an unknown force to change history for the better. His only guide on this journey is Al, an observer from his own time, who appears in the form of a hologram that only Sam can see and hear. And so Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, striving to put right what once went wrong, and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 68, Ghost Ship. to put your head between your legs. I guess that makes it easier to kiss your butt goodbye. Whoa, hang on, Eddie. Hang on. Come on. That's a baby. Atta girl. Atta girl. Easy. <laughs> what happened? The automatic pilot flip out again? Turn that damn black box off. We're gonna fly this baby to Bermuda the way God intended by the seat of our pants. We're going to Bermuda? August 13th, 1956, you're a co-pilot by the name of... Eddie Bracken, right here. Oh, yeah, Francis Edward Bracken. Uh, you're an, a fledgling airborne limo driver. You're, uh, you're flying uh, Grant Cutter Jr., who's the heir to a huge pet. Petroleum. Oh, Petroleum Company. And his new bride. To Bermuda, nice. I know that, yeah. yes. Oh, it's only nice. you never get there. Crash? No, calm down. We crash? You don't know you don't crash. You turn around and you go back to Norwich, Virginia, which is where you took off from. Why, we have some kind of engine trouble or something, is that it? Ziggy says, I don't know, you got a sick pass. Huh? Anger. Pass. Pass. Michelle. Yeah, she's got a stomachache. I know that. Oh, no, no. She's got... Oh, she's got a cute... Huh? Appendicitis. 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 Appendicitis? What's cute about that? Al, Al, what's wrong? What are you doing? This thing has gone bluey on me. I can't get anything on it. It's because we're in the Bermuda Triangle. It's because the hand link always goes bluey. Not this bluey. You're not going to tell me that you believe all the myths, are you? Sam, a lot of freaky things have happened out here. There's ships that disappear, planes vanish, even on clear days. Like this one. There's theories that say that it's either electromagnetic vortices or else... Or sea monsters. How did you know? Right, I remember. Giant prehistoric lizard fish have been seen by sailors in the... What's so funny? What are you laughing about? I'm just joking. Okay. It's just no joke, Sam. 
If I wasn't a hologram, I wouldn't be caught dead out here. What's up? You losing contact again? Of course I'm losing contact again. We're in the middle of the stupid Bermuda Triangle. You ask me if I'm, if I'm losing contact again. Wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. What? I got something. You changed history. Michelle doesn't die. Uh, no, I don't know, I don't know. But now... What? What? The plane and everyone in it disappears. This... Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. I'm Spooky Christy Philippus. Ooh. Ooh. I'm extra spooky <laughs> Allison Pregler. And I'm British Matt Dale, <laughs> the worst of all. No daylight savings time for you. <laughs> no, not yet. It's just a different time that, like, it, it just shifts on a different day. Yes, it is. Yeah, we, oh, we okay. shift in a couple of weeks. But hey, that means you guys time-travelled and I didn't. <laughs> How quantum leapy. Well, no, I think we're still behind the curve with you because you're six or seven hours ahead, depending on who you're talking to. That's true. That's true. But much like Quantum Leap, uh, he time-travelled back. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Sun Sunday evening sucks, you guys. Don't don't bother with it. Skip it. <laughs> got it. Got it. Well, we have to get through this recording first anyway, and then That's we will true. fast forward to Monday morning work. I highly recommend it. <laughs> well, we are talking about the season four episode Ghost Ship today, and that's why we started sort of with the spooky theme that devolved into daylight savings time because Matt was not on the stick. <laughs> <laughs> Allison and I were sitting here hitting our watches with our finger as you do. And yeah. um, <laughs> I, I'm like, yeah, we're, we're ready to record in an hour. Yeah, it's good. I'll, I'll chill out. And... Wow, they're really prepared, huh? <laughs> Here in the States, we switched over to daylight saving time. And Matt, you don't go for, what'd you say, another week? A couple of weeks, I think. A couple of weeks? I don't know. Okay. Uh, yeah. I don't worry about it till it happens, but it's later this month, I think. All right, so that's a little bit of a uh, behind the scenes um, here, Quantum Leap production nightmare. It's because all the uh, all the magnetic interference with the clocks, everything's <laughs> all messed up. There's a spooky curse upon the podcast. Don't talk about spooky curses. I'm checking audacity every two minutes to make sure we're still recording. <laughs> I hope you are too, Alison. Yes, I've got rid of the curse of Norton security. <laughs> I just hope you do the rest of the podcast in that voice, Allison. <laughs> hey, Allison's discovered a new voice. <laughs> I'll do it in the baby voice. It's Please popular. Don't. Let's bring it back. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, before we do anything, before we go on any further, I need to stop the presses. I need to make an announcement. I need to let everybody know that we welcome aboard a new Patreon patron. His name is Charles Allen Gossard. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast family, Charles. Thank you so much for your support. Yay! Yay! Charles! Charles joined us at the $5 Leaper level, which means that he will get exclusive access to any additional content we eventually produce for the Quantum Leap <laughs> Patreon <laughs> page. I know that uh, we've been talking about it for a while. We did do our Phantom of the Park special. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, you know, it's funny. We were going to do the Paradox table read as a Patreon stretch goal, but 
Leap Day came around and uh, that ship has sailed. So we're busy at work here at the Quantum Leap Laboratory trying to figure you better, out. Better uh, write another spec script and then we'll we'll get that out. I guess so. Yeah. Let's put it this way. I'm not I'm not afraid of coming up with content for Patreon. It's not a matter of creativity. It's just a matter of time. So everybody yeah. who supports us, um, just remember it really does help. All of the money that you guys are giving goes to keep up with our server costs and to allow us to keep putting this show out. So it really is a boon, and we appreciate all of your support. Thank you, Charles Allen Gossard. If you want to be like Charles and our other Patreon supporters, you can find us at patreon.com slash Podcast. So, all right. Um, now that we have business out of the way, I don't want to be shilling the entire episode, but you know, patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast. Allison, give me your first impressions of Ghost Ship. It's a spooky episode. <laughs> um, I don't know why it's called Ghost Ship and then it's on a plane. I mean, I know why it's called Ghost Ship, but it's on a plane. It's not really the main focus of it, but all right. It's kind of named after the twist at the end. It's like calling Sixth Sense they were all dead. <laughs> <laughs> Right? <laughs> Soylent Green is made of people. You don't have to go now. <laughs> people. Um, yeah. It, uh, it's This is a bottle episode. Um, and like a lot of bottle episodes, you know, it's it's going to feel like, um, you know, you're kind of uh, claustrophobic a little bit, trapped in one kind of set scene. Um, but they do pretty good with what they have. It's a decent episode, I think. Okay. How about you, Matt? Hmm. Yeah, um, it is one of the rare Quantum Leap bottle episodes. I usually really like bottle shows in other series. Uh, th- this one was an interesting one for me. Um, I last last time we recorded, I was really psyched about rewatching this and and preparing for the podcast record. And I watched it in preparation and realised I'm not really sure why I like it. So I'm really looking forward to talking to you guys about this, and hopefully you can explain uh, what's good about it. Because I, yeah, it, it's I, I don't know. I, I, I thought I liked this episode when I actually sat down to try and come to terms with with what I like about it and what I maybe dislike about it. I, I got nothing. Maybe you lost your memory, like Coop. Yes, it must must be that. Please just don't crash the podcast into the ocean. Well, I mean, it's funny you guys mentioned the bottle episode aspect of it because that's one of the first things I wrote down. In as much as you can have a bottle episode for Quantum Leap, this one is. And the fact that it is a bottle episode with, what, three sets, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. It's basically three sets and a ton of stock footage of the Grum and Goose. Yes. Which Allison and I will talk about, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> But I think for all of that, it's very well crafted and it works for the limited elements that they had to put into it. Really what my trepidation was, not so much the bottle nature of the show, but supernatural episodes are always spotty for me when it comes to Quantum Leap. Mm. I'm, I'm not really a fan of their supernatural outings, but I have to say this is the first one, maybe the first one that actually works sort of. Maybe that's ever all of our feelings here. It works, sorta. Yeah, <laughs> can't really okay. say it's bad. It works, sorta. What works about it for you, though, Chris? What makes it different to a portrait for Troyan or uh, any of the other ones that that work, sorta? Let's let's go into the lore. They're talking about the Bermuda Triangle a lot, 
and Al always comes to the fore as the superstitious one of the duo. And I thought that the way that he reacted to the fact that they were in the triangle was like comedy gold. I thought that they played off each other extremely well in this episode, just Dean and Scott and the chemistry and... I don't know, just something about their interplay really sung for me in this one. So I think that it was so enjoyable just to watch them, Matt. Maybe that's why the episode works as well as it does. It was pretty funny. Like, there was a really broad spectrum of things that Al was believing in in this episode. He was believing in curses, sea monsters, UFOs, (laughs) all of this stuff. Um, And this is one... uh, that it, it was a pretty good interplay because uh, the Bermuda Triangle has a pretty scientific explanation for why things happen like they do. So it would make sense that Sam's like, no, it's just this. Why would you? Okay, it's like the North Pole. It's all like, you know, it's not curses. It's not any of this supernatural stuff. And it makes sense that uh, that I would be the one that's like, nope, no, it's a curse. It's evil. Something spooky. But don't you just feel there's a, a bit too much of that? Like like you say, he's he's kind of... It's a real scattergun approach to all this stuff. And, and we've seen bits of this with Al before, where in an episode something is happening and he is buying into it completely. But like you say, in this, he's just believing in anything. It just, just feels a bit much. Yeah. <laughs> it, you obviously find that funny. I found the opposite. Sea monsters caused the, the Bermuda Triangle curse. Yeah. A UFO did it. I think as a Navy pilot, perhaps he would buy more into this stuff, too. I don't know. It just feels like something like involving planes and all that. I I don't know that maybe Al would be more into. I just wish he'd latched onto something and and just focused on that. But then maybe we wouldn't have as much humor. That's you're you're right. You're right. right. And here's the thing. I mean, if you're going to believe one thing about the triangle, I guess you're going to believe them all. Because like you said, Matt, it's such a it's like a a mixed bag of holding. There's too much to cram (laughs) into it. If you're going to say it's aliens, then it's aliens. If you're going to say it's ghosts, it's ghosts. If you're going to say it's dimensional portals, it's dimensional portals. Why not all three? (laughs) Can you guys refresh my memory on this? Did Al ever mention having flown through the triangle himself i don't believe he did i don't think so no i don't think so either and to me that's kind of a weird thing that they didn't have something that was more related to his past as a navy pilot because i think it just would have lent a little bit more credibility i don't know when was the last time he flew when he when he was shot down in vietnam i don't know Maybe he doesn't have great experience the last time he's flying a plane. Yeah, but uh, if you if he can, you know, join the circus and learn to play pool with magic and, yeah. um, I don't know, teach Robert Redford how to play baseball, I'm thinking that he can also have one jaunt through the triangle at some point during his flight training or whatever. Yeah. They did have him teaching Sam how to fly the plane or at least showing him what he needs to do in the situation. So it, his experience still was useful to the plot. Yeah, been there, done that. That was the pilot. <laughs> and they do mention the pilot. Yeah, yeah, I loved it. So it's a play on words, right? A pilot in the pilot. Hey. Mm-hmm. hey. And I love the fact that they had the call back to Genesis. It shows you how far they've come in their relationship because in Genesis, Al was pretty much guiding Sam and it was sort of like a mentor, mentee, this is what you do, this is what you do. Now they're so comfortable with each other. Sam's like, hey, I can fly. I can fly. Dial. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just like snarky Al comes to the surface and just the way he turns into sort of a no-nonsense 
this is what flying is, and you don't even know half of the danger that you're in right now, but I'm going to keep you safe. And it was a way for him to sort of assert some authority in something that he is an expert in. And I think they both did that very well in this episode. It wasn't just the comedy, but did you guys notice the scenes where Sam was trying to um, diagnose and then save Michelle? He became no-nonsense, all-business doctor. Mm -hmm. And it was like he was owning. Yeah, one of the few times he seemed really in control. That's not something that we often get to see Sam do. And I really enjoyed it in this instance. So, again, Matt, maybe it's not one thing that you can point at, why it's so enjoyable, but I think a bunch of little elements just come together to make it more enjoyable than it deserves to be. In in this instance, on this leap, um, Sam has to be the one in control because Coop is just uh, having all these PTSD flashbacks, uh, flying the plane. The other three don't know what's going on in this situation. And um, so I think Sam and Al together, you know, as a pair worked really well in taking control of the situation. Sam's got uh, the stuff with the appendicitis down. Uh, Al's uh, telling him how to fly. And uh, yeah, they're, they're the ones that are guiding this plane at this point. Right. And you touched upon something that really makes the episode sort of not work for me. The whole coop ptsd flashbacks with the it it just i i I don't like to make light of ptsd but this struck me as over macho grande over macho grande no i don't think i'll ever get over macho grande those wounds run pretty deep from airplane i don't know if you guys are fans of airplane (laughs) but The drinking problem and all that? It's been a long time. Yeah, this is a running joke with Robert Hayes' character in Airplane was that he lost his squadron over Macho Grande. And every, you know, half hour or so, they have him with this PTSD flashback of, pull up, pull up, you're getting it too low, pull up. And we, what did we have? This was a 40-minute episode. I say we had a good 10 minutes of Coop just hearing voices and staring off into the distance. You'll never spot that you but watching squall lines, Boyle. Get a... Yes, really looks weird, Skipper. Skipper, short three. My instruments are Botson. Engine temp, RPMs, cylinder head. They're all swinging from peg to peg. Cooper? Do you think he gets that every time something goes a bit fuzzy on a plane? Because maybe he should be looking for another career by now, right? <laughs> I mean, perhaps. I, I don't want to make light of PTSD either, but again, you know, he, he does seem to be it does seem to be pretty severe in his case. I guess that's why they the leap happened, though, because um, he wasn't being open about it and hiding it pretty well. But in this case, um, he didn't get out of it that time. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure it probably did happen, but he covered for it or, you know, nothing bad happened. Uh, but because they were in that particular situation and in that area, that's what really triggered everything. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I guess it makes sense in universe, but just him slipping into that fugue state just seemed kind of dumb after a while. You know, I'll be blunt about it. It was like, okay, we get it. And I don't know if it's because they were in this sort of limited set with kind of a limited plot. Maybe they didn't know how to fill the time with something that was a little bit more compelling. But um, like I said, I think one of those scenes would have been enough. And it especially got to me as he was reliving it in his head, it was happening all around them, as if his flashback was directing nature itself to bring down a storm and to, to cause lightning to strike. What happened next? A lightning strike! Lightning! It set my engines on fire! 
it just it it strained credulity to the breaking point for me when that started to happen. I felt like it needed like one more element to kind of carry the episode, um, like flesh out the um, the supporting characters a little bit more. I'm not sure what because I don't think that they were flat, but I think like there was there was like one thing that it was missing, and I'm not sure. And and I also like I mean I don't think the PTSD stuff was that ridiculous, but um, I do think it got kind of ridiculous at the end when. He's talking about um, after he his uh, squadron was taken out, and he was he's like, oh, before I was picked up by that boat, uh, I was picked up by this other boat, um, the USS Cyclops, and then uh, and then that one was, uh, was, was sank, and then everyone died on that, and then I got picked up by another one, and then they have the the dumb twist like it disappeared thirty years ago. <laughs> what? What a name for a cursed ship. You don't call a ship the Cyclops unless you really want it to be cursed. So there's all that together. I felt like it really brushed over the fact that he's like, oh, yeah, I was uh, like right after everyone died and then I was picked up by a boat that also <laughs> sank and everyone died. But anyway, wait for the twist. <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, OK, as a twist, then Sam leaps. It's fine. But. I think you asked me earlier, Matt, maybe to get back to where we began this. You said what works for this that didn't work for, like, say, a portrait for Troyan for me. I think that this one leaned on the lore of the triangle in as much as everybody knows about the lore of the triangle. And it had just the one twist. Whereas I think, like, portrait for Troyan, a lot of that script is a confusing mess. It just doesn't work. And then they just threw in the twist at the end. Oh, she's a ghost. <laughs> and it was just not a very satisfying episode overall. It's like it tried too hard. It was contortionist in its ridiculous plot twists and trying to make everything seem as spooky and keep you as, you know, and intrigued with all this supernatural nonsense as possible. Whereas the Bermuda Triangle has its own sort of cachet. So you just say Bermuda Triangle, it's sort of shorthand for weird. So then they can they can just sort of go from there and not try too hard. Same thing with the B-Man. It's like the B-Man, it's just like all of these things are happening and the snakes and uh, the goat and, you know, nonsense after nonsense until you have that ridiculous ending where, you know, Alice the devil. So... <laughs> uh yeah, but that was great. So, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I, I like spooky supernatural stuff. So, I mean, like, I, I tend to enjoy the supernatural episodes uh, to varying degrees. Some of them are very bad. Some of them are good. Um, but uh, this one, I think, is a more scientific thing. Like, I don't buy into, like, uh, Bermuda Triangle curses and all that. Like, there is a, a logical explanation for why things are the way they are there, why there's more crashes and more things disappear. Um, it's just a very dangerous area to be in. So, to me, it, it barely even feels like a supernatural thing. I know they kind of play it up in this episode with, like, are all these things spooky coincidences? Why is the hand link messing up when they're in mm. there? And why did it clear up when they left? Uh, all this other stuff. Why are they hearing the music? Why, uh, you know... Um, but all of these things that could sort of be explained in different ways. 
Yeah, and I did a whole, I, you guys know I do that radio show here on Long Island, and I did a whole segment about the Bermuda Triangle once after I went through it. So you're right, Allison, um, there is uh, a lot of explanation as to why it has the reputation that it does. Um, the supernatural factor actually plays into it a lot less than people uh, attribute to it. Um, as far as things that are unknown or how did it just disappear? Well, nothing just disappeared. There's not like a lot of that stuff that's actually on record. It's just that legends like that grow up and then all of a sudden the place becomes notorious for disappearances, mainly because people are only thinking about it for disappearances. Mm -hmm. It's like what goes on with anything when you start focusing on it and looking for it, you're going to find more of it and therefore it's going to seem more remarkable to you. Did the sea monsters thing come from like um, ancient maps? They'd be like ships disappear here, so they're they're here. There be monsters. Yeah, I I gotta think that that's I I don't recall any incidents that I came across in my research where somebody blamed it on a sea monster. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's just Al. Uh, except for this quantum leap episode, you look up Bermuda Triangle sea monster, and it comes up with quantum leap ghost ship. <laughs> and a picture of Sigmund, my favorite Sid and Marty Croft character. Now Sigmund, the sea monster, and Johnny and Scott are friends. Finest of friends that ever could be on the land or on the sea. Speaking of other shows, you guys told me at the end of the last episode that this was a straight-up crossover with another Don Belisario production called The Tales of the Gold Monkey. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I'm wondering if this is especially good Tales of the Gold Monkey fanfic. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's why we like it. No. <laughs> <laughs> but have either of you guys watched Tales of the Gold Monkey? I have, yeah. Yes. Oh, so you both have. Yeah. I, I'd never even heard of it until researching this episode for the book. Um, and I was getting in such obsessive detail that I watched all 20-odd episodes <laughs> just to familiarise myself with what effectively is a crossover by a plane. Yeah. We, we say crossover. I mean, really, it's it's like the Donald Belisario shared universe, like how in the pilot uh, Sam alludes to the fact that uh, his sister is married to a Magnum P.I. character. It's like that. So um, the plane that they keep using the footage of, uh, a Grum and Goose, um, is called the Cutter's Goose, um, which is named after Jake Cutter from Tales of the Gold Monkey, uh, played by uh, Stephen Collins. Decker? Yeah. It's basically Indiana Jones for TV. Um, there And the, the show Tailspin, the cartoon that was based loosely off of uh, Tales of the Gold Monkey. Uh, Roddy McDowell's mm -hmm. in it. He was also very good. Um, there was also a character named Gushy in Tales of the Gold Monkey. Seriously? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. They imply that the, uh, the guy in this episode is related to Stephen Collins' character from Tales of the Gold Monkey. He has the same last name. Okay, but none of the characters that we saw in this actually crossed over from Tales of the Gold Monkey. No. Just the footage. I guess calling it a crossover, I don't know if that's accurate, but it certainly is in the same universe. Yeah. And I think it's it's in the same stock footage vault that they already had the rights to, therefore. <laughs> but they do imply <laughs> that these characters like are in the same universe, that they're related to them, so there is a little bit of that. Yeah, only by surname. And I, I, I totally agree with you. I, I think it is a shared universe, but just to play devil's advocate, 
I think we know Belisario likes using some of the same names repeatedly just because he's attached to them. But yeah, I there is nothing to say it's not the same plane. So uh, I like to think it is, certainly. Yeah, and it's more fun to be in a shared universe, in my opinion, anyway. So Yeah. I like it. And it's a good excuse to watch a, a fun show. I really enjoyed uh, Tales when I... I'd say I hadn't even heard of it, and I, I didn't know the, the Tailspin link. Um, and uh, yeah, I got a real kick watching it. it. It was a nice break after about 18 months, two years of obsessively watching Quantum Leap minute by minute on freeze frame. <laughs> uh, to them, well, Watch a bit of other TV for once. Like, hooray! It was really well produced. Tales of the Gold Monkey was a huge deal at the time. Yeah, it's high quality. I believe the set that they created with the waterfall was like the largest set of that kind at that time. Like it was super expensive. Oh, it doesn't surprise me. It was a big deal. They did really, really well. Um, but I think like Donald Belisario had either creative differences with the network or it just wasn't financially feasible to keep doing it. So even though they had really good ratings, it was just one season. As the oldster of the group, I actually remember when it was on the air, but it's not something we ever watched in the house. And way back then, you only had the one TV, so if your parents didn't watch it, you didn't watch it. Mm -hmm. What year was that? Do you remember? It was early 80s, right? Uh, 82 to 83. Right, so I was like 12 years old. So I probably would have liked it now that you guys are talking it up. I think I'm going to go take a look for it because it's only one season. And I just, for no reason at all, rewatched the third season of Enterprise. And if I can get through that horse shit, I can certainly... <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> no, hang on, hang on, back up. There has to be a reason for that. You did not do that for no reason. Actually, no, no, there was a reason. And it wasn't the whole third season. And a little tangent. I was watching Picard... And there was a scene in Picard where um, a commenter on the uh, one of the Star Trek websites said something to the effect of, I wonder, um, I don't remember the context, but they brought up the Enterprise episode Damage, I think it was. It was the third season episode where Archer needs a warp coil or a warp core or something for the, for the warp drive. Oh, And they right. strand an entire crew on a ship that has lesser weapons and technology to limp home it'll take them years to get home now and Archer's like I'm sorry I need it see ya I gave you extra food and some kind of ore and they go but we disappeared 30 years ago (laughs) (laughs) but from there I just kept on watching and I don't know why and it wasn't as bad as I remembered but it really is so dumb in so many ways and thank god I get to look at Linda Park every single time anyway (laughs) End of tangent. Ah, okay. <laughs> so, where were we? Tales of the Gold Monkey. Roddy McDowell was very good in Tales of the Gold Monkey, I will say that. Yes. My favorite episode yeah. from that was uh, was one that focused on his character and uh, his daughter. It was very good. Well, maybe we'll do a limited Patreon podcast on Tales of the Gold Monkey. I'd be up for that. <laughs> One line that got me in this episode, uh, when Al was talking about Sam flapping his hands up and down like wings before the autopilot came on. When you were flapping your wings up and down before we went on automatic pilot, that was weird. This happened off screen, apparently. (laughs) Yeah, I don't remember that. Like, he was was saying that it was weird because they were, the autopilot wasn't turning on, so uh, apparently he was flapping his hands like wings, like he was going to fly. Oh, thank God they cut that. (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't know. It sounded kind of improvised. I, it was very strange. And I don't know, tonally, tonally, this episode can be a little all over the place. I, di- I did also like Elle's line when he says, um, <laughs> she's got a cute appendicitis. Appendicitis? 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 What's cute about that? Oh, (laughs) that's so well. That can can we just that that was one of my I didn't make that many notes on this episode, and that that was one of them. I I get we have this running gag of the handling only spelling out half a word, and and Al's trying to guess what the rest of the word is. Clearly, the whole word is there. How dumb is Al (laughs) that he thinks appendicitis is pronounced appendicitus? Maybe it's scrolling. He has a very tiny screen, so it's like scrolling along at a very slow pace, so he's not getting the full word. It's so tiny that it apparently doesn't exist at all, because if you really look at that prop, there's no screen on it. No. (laughs) Sometimes, you know, it'll flash enter or something. Maybe that's just the old ones, the calculator one. Yeah. Yeah, the calculator one had it. It's so funny. They pretend there's a screen and then there's (laughs) close-ups. What are you doing? Are you reading the the lights in Morse code? What is happening? (laughs) Maybe Al has like some kind of ocular implant and the screen is sort of like a VR overlay onto the hand link. Yeah. I was thinking it's something like that. But either way, the whole word is there. (laughs) Al is not stupid. Where does appendicitus come from? Appendicitus? Look, sometimes you got to be a little dumb, and I relate to that. (laughs) All in the name of comedy, Matt. (laughs) Appendicitus. It is quite funny. To be fair, I laughed first, and then the fanish part of me kicked in. (laughs) You know, what was also very good was the, the shots of Al standing outside the window... Mm. of the set just like waving to sam through the window of the plane Mm -hmm. yeah and that was one of the things that i thought was worked particularly well because like we discussed this being the bottle episode it was they were in tight quarters most of the show and for all that they were able to intercut different close-ups and scenes without making like an obvious jump cut. And I know that's sort of getting into the weeds of like camera work and the way you're supposed to edit things together. But when there's a shot of all three of them and it's a relatively tight shot, then you just go to one of them. It never looked weird. Like they always found a way to to angle it differently and to, to make it look as slick as possible. Yeah. It didn't feel like they just set up the camera and then filmed all the scenes at once in the same way. There was a lot of craftsmanship that went into a relatively simple setup, and it it actually, they made it look simpler than I'm sure it was, because I'm sure that was a big concern. When we get back to the editing bay, we have to have enough different angles, enough different reaction shots, we have to have enough to put an actual show together that looks like something other than a high school production. And I think they did it wonderfully, especially the shots in the cockpit, because that was just so tight, you know? And, um... Let's talk about the other cast members on this. We had Coop, who basically got to look off into the distance a lot. (laughs) Then we had Kimberly Foster, who played Wendy Cooper. And then there's Grant and Michelle. Grant was played by Kurt Deutsch. I think that's how you say it. And Michelle was the now very famous Carla Gugino. And I have had a crush on her forever. So it was just so great to see her in this. Her and Linda Park. Yeah, her and Linda Park. And I'm sure when I was like 22 and watching this, I was like, ah. So I wish. (laughs) Did you do it that creepy? Yes. (laughs) I hope you did. Creepier. I'm older and wiser now. I'm more circumspect now. But but you didn't you didn't name a a character in Paradox after her. No, no, I didn't. I didn't. But you know maybe she would have played Julie. That would have been cool. Yeah. 
And if you guys don't know what Matt's talking about, it's the table read of Paradox, our Leap Day special. It's going to hit you like a 20-pound turkey. (laughs) And no context for you. Moving on back to Carla Giugino. I thought that she did fine in this. And it's funny, we were laughing before, but I put down sort of main themes for every rundown so that we can maybe go to things to talk about. And the only thing I could think of besides spooky supernatural adventure time was don't be a dick. Mm. And they set up Grant's character to be such a dick in the beginning. And it turns out the guy he's being a jerk to turns around is going to save his wife's life. And I really thought in my memory that he was an antal throughout the entire episode, but he did do sort of a 180 when he realized how serious the situation is. And I kind of appreciated that because they weren't throwing in like conflict with him just for the sake of having, you know, more drama. I think that that was a wise choice. Um, unfortunately for Grant, he's a dick no matter what, because even when he's trying to be nice, <laughs> he insults Sam's character. He's like, I'll never forget you for this, Eddie. And I'll make sure my dad doesn't either. You'll always have a job with us. It's just like, you condescending prick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think he was supposed to be just like very spoiled and privileged and not always intending to be a dick. But definitely was a dick. But I think a lot of that came from that. And this was a slap back to reality. For sure. And it's just nice to see that he rose to the challenge instead of retreating into his privilege. I enjoyed the bit where they are uh, MacGyvering an Ivy. <laughs> they got to get whatever they got um, to, to create a makeshift Ivy um, out of a, a douchebag. Mom, do you ever feel, you know, not so fresh? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that that was an enema bag. Is that what it was? I don't know what it looked like in the fifties. Ah, potato, potato. <laughs> I thought that it, I thought it was a douchebag from the fifties. I don't know what they looked like back then. So why why would they have an enema bag? Why would they? I figured she had a douchebag, like you know, for traveling and using it or something. Why, why would she? Why would someone travel with an enema bag? Because I wouldn't ever, as a male, consider. Anything being a douchebag. So that's just my limited... <laughs> I feel like it was a douchebag because like... I think this is something where we need to encourage the listeners to uh, contact us and give us your feedback on whether it was a douchebag or an enema bag. I feel like uh, I got the script on my computer. I'm going to bring it up right now. I'm going to find out. Oh! Let me... Mm, pins and needles. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find it. We're going to solve this mystery. <laughs> I will be vindicated. It'll just say medical bag or something. Finally, one of the outstanding mysteries of the Bermuda Triangle solved right here on the Quantum Leap podcast. <laughs> Douchebag or enema bag. Ooh. Oh, yeah. All right. I got it right here. Page 47 of the <laughs> ghost ship script. Feature Wendy. She comes through the curtain and holds up a douchebag. Wow. Mind... Blown. <laughs> <laughs> but douchebags disappeared 30 years ago. <laughs> oh, boy. I did like Al's reaction when they're, like, boiling the water and all that after the, the during the douchebag thing. And <laughs> what are you doing? You don't have time to be fixing dinner. What are you doing? You don't have time to be fixing dinner. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's that's my Matt moment in this one. I'm just thinking, it's like, Al, you're not really that stupid. You know he's not fixing dinner. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> when Al gets spooked, he gets dumb. Maybe there's like a correlation there. He seems to get dumber the more um the more he's believing in curses and, and all this other stuff. Yeah, because he's spooked. This needs to be a feature for the show where we just track every time Al is unbelievably and uncharacteristically stupid. <laughs> if there's enough of them, then technically it's characteristically. So well. Yeah, but I'll tell you what, he knew what a douchebag was. I'm sure he did. Chris and I did not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still blushing over here. Chris, we need to... No, we don't need to do anything, Matt. We need to do better. <laughs> not, not in that regard. I'm fine. <laughs> it's fine. I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what we need to do. I'm just Googling pictures of douchebags at the moment so that next time, next time I'm presented with one, I identify it. Did a picture of Grant come up? <laughs> I, I spent an inordinate amount of time in this episode trying to figure out what the hell Al's brooch was. It looked like a dragon or something. Didn't you get on the blower with your best friend, Jean-Pierre Dorliac? Man, I should have messaged him. I'd be, I'd be like, what is this? Hey, do you, do you know Jean-Pierre Dorliac? You should have said. <laughs> My best friend, Jean-Pierre Dorliac? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Alison Pregler, friend of the stars. I, I have messaged him about brooches occasionally. <laughs> Aren't they brooches? Brooches? Is that how you say it? Brooches. I like the way you say it, Alison. I always heard brooch. Well, if you're Canadian, then yes. <laughs> What's that, a boot a brooch? Oh, it says brooch. Shit. <laughs> Dumb moment. I turned into a real owl there. People wear brooches, Al wears brooches. <laughs> and what did you think it was? I'm just looking at a picture of it. I don't know. It looks like a it looks like a dragon kind of curled up in a circle around a red jewel. Yeah. Or a magenta jewel. This is the only episode that I spotted it in. Yeah, I think that's the only one I remember it being in. It kind of reminds me of like um in the early 2000s is like really popular to have like dragon statues and like um yeah. dragon incense burners and dragon candles. Yeah, dragon holding a crystal. It's not tacky at all. <laughs> my, uh, my brother loved those things. <laughs> it was it was nice because if you were ever out of gift ideas, you're like, where is a dragon statue? That's the story of my life and anything Star Trek related. Mm -hmm. I got another Star Trek gift this week. You know what? You're never out of uh, stuff, though. Star Trek merch uh, lasts till the end of time. Still no Groppler Zorn action figure, though. <laughs> oh, I just have to buy the commemorative plate for Encounter at Farpoint. That's got Groppler Zorn on it. <laughs> ah, brilliant. Does it really? <laughs> it does. I was like, I can't believe Groppler Zorn made it to the commemorative plate. <laughs> I, I remember that plate. Oh, man. Commemorative plates are so good to me. I still regret um, the day I found a collection of, of uh, Next Generation commemorative plates at a, a used, like a Goodwill, and uh, did not buy them. It's really a shame. Oh. No, your apartment is better for it. Trust me. <laughs> what, what else do we have about this, this episode to talk about? Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. We started talking about Groppler Zorn. My bad. I noticed on um, Coop's jacket, there was like a patch for his squadron or something in the, in the Navy that has Felix the cat on it and like a bomb. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Was that like a, a normal thing back then to like have like patches for your military unit with cartoon characters on them? What that made me think of was when you see anything about, say, World War II bombers, they always have a little cartoon painted on the side and they make it look like a shark's mouth or, you know, they have um, like a silhouette of a, of, a, of a buxom woman or something like that. So I was thinking it's just some kind of like military ephemera that has grown up around those branches of the service that maybe 
unless you're in them, you don't really know what the hell it means. I mean, I imagine as as a Navy man, uh, well, I think Belisario was in the Navy, right? Uh, he met Lee Harvey Oswald, so I got to think he was in the Marines. Oh, okay. Well, I, I would think as a military man, he would be more familiar with this kind of stuff, and it, it probably made sense to him. Yeah, more than likely. And you got to think that Jean-Pierre knows his business, so he's not going to put up anything that is not appropriate. That's very true. Yeah. He seems to be much more cognizant of what belongs and what doesn't than anybody on the set, especially some of the people putting the radios up there. So <laughs> I think that if, if it wasn't appropriate, I don't think Jean-Pierre would have let it fly. No pun intended. Yeah, I just, uh, I, I don't know. It, it stood out to me and like, they never talk about it, which I, I wouldn't think they would, but it's just something I never really thought about why it is that particular way. I just Googled it and they do have a whole bunch of them on uh, like Google Images. One with Dumbo dropping a bomb. Gosh. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. A Dumbo drop. Yeah. <laughs> Operation Dumbo drop. But yeah, that, that's interesting that that was a thing. I don't know. I never really thought about... It actually is a thing. This looks like bombardment squadrons have whatever cartoon character you want to think of dropping a bomb. And that was Felix the Cat holding like a big cartoon bomb. Mm-hmm. So that must have been what they had for the insignia on whatever bombardier group they were using to knock out those subs when he was going into his fugue state. That's really neat. Mm. Yeah, I bet there's an interesting history there about how that custom started. Yeah, there's even one here with uh, with Donald Duck. Oh, that's cool. Oh, they should have done Donald Duck and then Donald Belisario. <laughs> I did want to ask real quick, Chris, does this episode... Uh, how how do you think it compared to your own experience going through the Bermuda Triangle? Mm. <laughs> this episode was a lot more fun. <laughs> Let me tell you about my experience in the Bermuda Triangle. Um, I think I will put that to flip side at the end of this. So guys, stay tuned after the credits. I'll uh, put a special bonus feature on the end of this one. It's about, a, I guess, a six or seven minute segment I did after I went through the Bermuda Triangle. And the Bermuda Triangle is just sort of a flat C. It's called the Sargasso Sea that I went through anyway on a cruise ship. And this was my cruise ship experience. I went on the ship uh, with my wife and my whole like in-law family because my in-laws wanted to do something nice for everyone. So they gave us all a cruise, which was a phenomenal gift. I mean, it was so nice of them. I'd never been on a cruise before, so I was excited. And then I was on the boat for about nine hours. And uh, we had two days left at sea, and I was already done with the boat. So my experience of being on a cruise ship is it's being in like a really nice hotel that you can't leave. And put on top of it that you were going through what they call the Bermuda Triangle, which is supposed to be like spooky and scary and all that. And no, it's just a very sort of dead patch of water. So you maybe see some um, sargassum gum floating out. In, that's why they call it the Sargasso Sea, floating out in the distance that you have to avoid because ships used to get caught up in that stuff. And, um, you know, if it weren't for the rum swizzles, the free food, and uh, the wine bar, I don't know what I would have done. <laughs> when I got to Bermuda, it was great. But uh, no, I mean, there were some pretty wicked lightning storms, I can tell you that. So, so that was neat. But I wish, I was praying to see a friggin' UFO. <laughs> have you guys ever been to, to that area? <laughs> No. No, I was on a boat once, but not a cruise. And I, I can say your experience um, was like mine in that I was very bored. 
I don't know that I was bored. I mean, I, like I said, I appreciated it. It's just not the kind of vacation I usually take. We like to take like active trips. So like you're always going somewhere, seeing something, doing stuff. And that's very much of a passive sit around trip. So it's just not my cup of tea. But I, I still love being on boats. <laughs> so I'm sorry that you had such a bad boat experience, Allison. Well, I mean, it was kind of like, um, I don't know if it was a ferry, but it was just basically kind of like, you know, go around the bay kind of thing and then go in and it's like, all right. I mean, I've had other boat rides that are a little <laughs> more exciting, I guess. Canoes, <laughs> a little more exciting. It's a little bit more hands-on. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, I'm glad that um, that you didn't have any bad experiences in the Bermuda Triangle. No, it would have been cool. And that you made it out alive. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> or did he? <laughs> Those lightning storms would have been pretty cool. When, uh, when, when I was a kid, uh, did you guys ever do this? Like when there's a lightning storm, you like turn off all the lights and watch outside the window like so you can see yeah. all the lightning? Yeah, uh, that's one of my favorite things to do. Oh, Allison. There's so much we could have shared had we known. <laughs> we have that in common. <laughs> so next time there's a lightning storm, I'll call you. And that's the only thing in common. <laughs> Aside from the fact that I died 30 years ago. Oh my God. Who's <laughs> hosting the podcast? We're a rudderless ship. I think we always have been. Yeah, that's for sure. I think we were getting to final thoughts. Yes, I think we're, we're um, testing the audience patience <laughs> by this point. So Matt, you start. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm i not going to be too hard on this episode. I, as I say, every time I've watched it in the past, I've enjoyed it. And I think it's it's a good, fun bit of Quantum Leap. And I was really looking forward to it this time. I, it's just when I tried to delve in a bit too deep and look for things to pull out to discuss, I, I found it a bit lacking. And yeah, sure, I, I think the the owl comedy sometimes is is a little bit stretched but it's it's fun i have i have no real issues with ghost ship it's just not one of my favorites anymore <laughs> <laughs> allison um it's eh, yeah like matt said it ain't that deep um and maybe for a bottle episode they should have gone a little bit deeper mm-hmm. cuz i think like you know the 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 best bottle episodes are ones that really um focus on character stuff because you don't have as much else going on so maybe that's part of why it's not that strong but it's like it's fine it's um i enjoy it enough all right and i'll mirror what you guys say i think that it is enjoyable for what it is in fact i think it's the series strongest supernatural episode to date that being a dubious distinction <coughs> from my point of view but it still is this is the one where the supernatural stuff worked the best for me um i wouldn't say not to watch it. I think it's a, a fun episode, well acted with a lot of great little character moments. And I think the comedy really works even when Al is being especially stupid. So I'm going to give it a pass um, just because I came away having really enjoyed it. So good for you, ghost ship. You didn't sink. If you out there listening would like to tell us what you thought of ghost ship, you can reach us by phone at 707-847-6682. You can send us an email at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Facebook at facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at quantumleappod. Or you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast, just like our new patron, Charles Allen Gossard. Woo, Charles! Woo! <laughs> Just remember that we may use your response on an upcoming episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast. And speaking of upcoming episodes, Matt, 
what's coming up next? Well, stay tuned for next week when we'll be talking to a man who turned himself <laughs> into a dog in the next episode, <laughs> Roberto! Amendment. Yeah. Congress shall make no act respecting the establishment of religion and prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Hey, that doesn't include animal sacrifices, and you know it. That's that, that's not. Oh come on, you know what I'm talking about. You, know, you push me now. don't know about this one, guys. Roberto, Roberto, Roberto. Yeah. Give him the chair. Chris, you, you should be all over this. This is all lore and stuff. Quantum Leap lore. But it's broadcasting and they're doing it bad. <laughs> I don't like the bad broadcasting. I love Allison's impression of me. <laughs> oh, that. This broadcasting, forget about it. <laughs> I'm sure I'll have many a thing to say about the broadcasting aspects of this episode, which I really barely remember. I kind of remember it sort of, I saw it the one time a hundred years ago when it aired because it came up in the rotation. <laughs> That being said, I don't remember any of the lore stuff, so I look forward to rediscovering that and digging into that. Thank you, Matt. You just gave me a little, like a little ray of hope. I may have built it up too much. Are you a big X Files fan, Chris? Um, I would say so. I watched it uh, pretty religiously, and I even watched both movies. So, because because uh, Roberto has a deep throat in it. And uh, it does have some kind of X-Files parallels going on. I wonder if that's... Yeah. Well, X-Files hadn't started yet, though, so maybe they inspired it. <laughs> Could be. Maybe um, Quantum Leap also takes place in the X-Files universe. We're racking up universes here. Oh, but that's not in the Belisario-verse, but certainly in the Tommy Westfall universe. <laughs> and um, we established that Quantum Leap is in the same universe as coming to America and trading places in the last show. Yeah. And now we know it's in the Tales of the Gold Monkey universe... Mm -hmm. So that means that Fox Mulder exists somewhere out there for Sam to leap into at some point. There's some fanfic waiting to happen. <laughs> I've read a Quantum Leap X-Files fanfic. It wasn't very good. <laughs> well, I can't wait to see what you guys are talking about. I am now looking more forward to Roberto than I was before. So thank you for that. And we hope that you at home are looking forward to hearing us talk about it. Until then, I have been Christopher DeFilippis. I've been Allison Pregler. And I've been Matt Dale. And we'll see you next time, or will we? Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap podcast, hosted by Allison, Matt, and Chris, with voice talent and contributions from Hayden McQueenie and Zoe Dean. Visit us at quantumleappodcast.com. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. The Quantum Leap Podcast is edited by Albie, Christopher DeFilippis, and Allison Pregler. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap Podcast is Albert Burge. Juan Miro, Christopher DeFilippis, and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. Morgan Felden is the producer. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual, and do not necessarily represent those of the Quantum Leap Podcast, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television.
The Quantum Leap podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television, and no copyright infringement is intended. Please visit barrenspace.com for this and other amazing content. The Quantum Leap podcast is a Baron Space production. Yes. What, what other themes did you have written down? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> question mark, question mark, question mark. Anyway. Yeah, this this was a tough one for themes. Yeah. And don't be a dick is a theme for most Quantum Leap, really. <laughs> That's a theme for life in general. I believe I so. Yes. I believe so. Yeah. It is quite funny. To be fair, I, I laughed first and then the fanny the the, the fanish part of me kicked in. <laughs> Say fanny? Fanny means something different around your part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please please cut that bit. <laughs> You're gonna make us an E rating in the UK. I will cut that bit, I promise. Thank you. I know your child might listen one day. And sort of like the incredulity that Sam um lends to the hang on, Pendy just got uh <clears throat> Penelope, hang on. Penelope, every time you nerd constant. All right, I'm sorry. But but Penelope died five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. We made it through ghost ship. Welcome everyone, I'm Christopher DeFilippis, and this is The Flipside, and tonight we sail into the, the Bermuda, Bermuda Triangle. Triangle. Well, actually, you won't, but I will, or rather, I did, a couple of weeks ago. But, nevertheless, I've sailed into the, the Bermuda, Bermuda Triangle. Triangle. Now, gather round and hear my bone-chilling tale. The morning was sultry when I arrived at the pier in New Jersey. There my ship waited, huge, imposing, floating on the waves much the way a brick doesn't. Celebrity was the name scrawled across her bow. I, a black omen for my ill-advised trip into the maw of the watery unknown. I climbed aboard with foreboding in my heart, and my worst fears were soon confirmed when the deck steward plied me with not one mimosa, but two, and thus began my harrowing journey. Listen, I don't care what you've heard about the Bermuda Triangle. The place is a non-stop party. All the way to Bermuda and back, it was nothing but sun, swimming, snorkeling, and kayaking. Oh, and drinking. Let's not forget the drinking. Rum swizzles trade hands with enough frequency to be Bermuda's unofficial currency. But no ghost ships manifested off the starboard bow. No dimensional vortexes opened to swallow us into oblivion. And not one UFO buzzed by to say hello though I did see some gnarly lightning storms over the Sargasso Sea. So how did the Bermuda Triangle get such a nefarious reputation? Well, let's back up and define just what the Bermuda Triangle is exactly. The points of the triangle are traditionally located at Miami to the west, Cuba to the south, and Bermuda to the north, and the 400,000 square miles of the Atlantic encompassed within are purported to be the site of more unexplained ship and airplane disappearances than anywhere else in the world. 
But long before the triangle was thus identified, that broader region of the Atlantic had a dark reputation for seafarers, due mainly to the unusual nature of the Sargasso Sea. The Sargasso Sea is bordered by strong ocean drifts and currents, like the Gulf Stream. It's a calm eye that lazily rotates at the center of these competing Atlantic flows. The area is so calm that it was known as the doldrums, and many ships, stranded, windless for weeks, were eventually abandoned. So there's no wonder that by the late 1890s, a naval survey counted more than 1,600 derelict vessels making eerie, solitary circuits around the Sargasso's perimeter. That's a hell of a lot of ghost ships for superstitious sailors to avoid. But it's important to note that the Bermuda Triangle lies mostly to the southwest of the Sargasso Sea, with only its topmost point jutting into the calm oval, like some giant Vulcan idic. And our modern fascination with this specific area didn't begin until the mid-20th century. The many disappearances of both ships and planes in the region was first noted in a 1950 news article. Another article in 1952 was the first to lay out the parameters of the triangle and suggest that supernatural forces may be at work. Both stories focused heavily on two specific incidents that are probably most responsible for catapulting the triangle to modern-day infamy. The first was the disappearance of the USS Cyclops in March of 1918. After delivering a load of ore to Rio de Janeiro, the Cyclops started on its return voyage to Baltimore with 306 passengers aboard, but they never made it. The Cyclops vanished, and no wreckage has ever been found. To this day, the disappearance of the Cyclops crew remains the single largest loss of life in U.S. naval history not involving combat. The second incident was the disappearance of Flight 19 in December of 1945. Flight 19 was actually a squad of five Grumman Avengers, conducting routine navigation and combat training exercises. Upon finishing their last bombing runs, the squad experienced navigational problems, with pilots reporting that they didn't know where they were. Shortly after that, all contact was lost, and the 14 airmen were never seen again. In an even stranger twist, one of the rescue planes that followed also vanished, with 13 people aboard. The legend of these disappearances and others grew in the pulps until the late 60s and early 70s saw a string of popular books that advanced every crackpot theory you've ever heard about the Bermuda Triangle. From alien abductions to dimensional gateways to technology from the sunken city of Atlantis. As a result, the Bermuda Triangle is now synonymous with the supernatural in the American consciousness, and science fiction has helped perpetuate this notion. The Cyclops was featured in an episode of Quantum Leap, and when the aliens landed at the end of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, they returned the abducted airmen of Flight 19. And that's all well and good from an entertainment standpoint. But even as we write off these supernatural explanations as fiction, it doesn't negate the fact that these are real people who have disappeared, seemingly without a trace. The question remains, what the hell happened to all of them? As it turns out, many of these so-called mysterious disappearances actually had simple explanations once later researchers followed up on them. And others assert that the rate of disappearances in the Bermuda Triangle is no greater than anywhere else in the world, that the myth is largely a byproduct of sensationalism and yellow journalism. But that just isn't true, according to one current researcher. In his 2003 book, Into the Bermuda Triangle, 
author Jean Quasar claims that 75 airplanes and many dozens of boats have disappeared in the Triangle since 1990 alone. Quasar also claims to have compiled the largest private repository of reports and official maritime documents, some 350 cases, completely documenting disappearances in the Bermuda Triangle. And what makes him stand apart from your garden variety quack is that he has striven to separate the real-world phenomenon of the Bermuda Triangle from the hokey myths that have grown up around it. Here he is in a recent radio interview. There's a lot of oddities in the area, and it's hard to get people to understand that because the Triangle has been so maligned by debunkers since the 1970s because they come up with straw man arguments, something supernatural or whatever. And I speak of nothing of the kind. I'm speaking of very tangible ships and aircraft with lots of people on board that exist in registers, and we know they are gone. They have vanished, and they have vanished in circumstances that are not normal accidents. Lending him further credibility is the fact that he has also come up with an extremely plausible explanation about the fate of Flight 19 that has nothing to do with the Triangle, but which posits that the planes actually crashed in the vast Okefenokee Swamp on the Florida-Georgia border. His speculation about the mystery of the Triangle? something called electric fog, a rare natural phenomenon, a mist or cloud generated by electromagnetic disturbances that engulfs a ship or aircraft and travels with it. Think St. Elmo's fire on steroids. Electric fog can cause disorientation, equipment malfunctions, and perhaps even time distortions. Or so claims pilot Bruce Gernon, who says that one of these funnel-shaped mists threw him into a vortex that caused him to travel a half hour and 100 miles forward in space and time in the course of three minutes. Charles Lindbergh also reported a strange magnetic fog that inexplicably messed with his instruments over the Florida Straits. And why would Lucky Lindy lie? Okay, I admit, this whole electric fog thing sounds like we're veering right back into crazy town. But as far-fetched and science fiction as it sounds, at least it's a stab at finding a natural explanation to the legitimate mystery of the Bermuda Triangle, without falling back on mystical Atlanteans or the Lagreen men. In any event, I'll leave those striving for a credible answer to grasp at their own straws. I'm using all mine to suck down rum swizzles. <laughs> 